We will be continuing in our series, Sovereign Suffering, in the book of Job. Uh, last Sunday, we studied the second part of Eliphaz's second speech in Job chapter 15, verses 17 through 35, where Eliphaz described in vivid poetic detail the fears of the wicked man, the folly of the wicked man, and the fate of the wicked man. We learned that Eliphaz was actually referring to Job since he used language that Job had used of himself. In other words, Job was the wicked man of the text. And Job's response to Eliphaz's blistering second speech is recorded in chapters 16 and 17. This morning, we will examine part one in chapter 16. We will look at four things. Job discloses his dual desire. Job describes his miserable affliction. Job declares his clear conscience, and Job divulges his daring request. These are the things that we will see in the text. Now, I have to make a note right now. Of the 15 chapters we have carefully studied thus far in Job, chapter 16 in my opinion, contains the most parallels to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And part of my task this morning will be to connect the dots so that Jesus is clearly seen and magnified since all Scripture ultimately points to Him, right? Luke 24, 44. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 16. We are going to look at verses 1 through 21. I know there's another verse, there's verse 22, but we're going to save that, Lord willing, for next week because it fits better with the next train of thought in the beginning of chapter 17. So we'll save that one for next week, Lord willing. Let's pray before we get to work. Father, we humble ourselves once more and thank you for the ways that we have been able to worship you through the reading of Scripture through the singing of Scripture, through the giving of our tithes and offerings, through even a, a greeting and a hello, a, a welcome, which is an extension of kind of fellowship to one another. And, and we have to thank you for the fellowship that we enjoyed before this service even began. We thank you for all the ways that we've been able to worship you thus far, and now we aim to worship you through the proclamation of your word, through our attentiveness, our alertness, our um, taking notes and learning from your word. These are all ways that we can worship you now and, and mostly through the proclamation. And so we pray that you're glorified here this morning. Teach us from your word. Help to point us to Jesus, who is the major point and purpose of Scripture, our Savior. Help to point us to him. May we learn about him this morning through Job's poetry. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity and time, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We could pick up where we left off last Sunday and begin with our first D, because that's what we're looking at, some Ds. Number one, Job discloses his dual desire. We see this in verses 1 through 6. We pick up at verses 1 through 3. This is what Job says after Eliphaz concludes his scathing uh, speech. He says, then Job, it says, and then Job answered and said, here are his words, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? <laughs> Job begins by blasting Eliphaz for slamming him with a volley of, I think what Job would consider non-applicable, irrelevant truths and we're not saying that the truths that Eliphaz unpacked are irrelevant or non-applicable. They are in some circumstances, but they certainly were not applicable to poor suffering Job. And so Job hammers back at him for, for kind of preaching to the choir and for being hurtful rather than helpful, right? These men had come to comfort Job and did the opposite the whole time they were with him. Job did not need to be schooled in the ways of the wicked. He was well-versed in anthropology. He was an expert in human behavior. How do we know this? Because we can tell in his responses to his friends. 
He was an advocate against evil. We learn this in chapter 1, verse 1. And he had instructed and strengthened those who struggled to overcome sin, chapter 3, verse 3. So what I'm telling you is that he's well-versed in evil. He was a man who lived his life for Christ in a sense and stayed away from evil and even helped those who wrestled with evil. So one of the biggest mistakes that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, his friends made, was that they kept trying to teach the real teacher of the group. There's nothing more frustrating than when you're an actual teacher, and, and really, they think they're teachers, but they're really students, and they're trying to tell you how to do your job. They're trying to inform you on matters, and that's exactly what's going on here, and it just drove Job, the battered patriarch, crazy. They were trying to school him on matters that he's an expert in. And that was very frustrating for him. It drove him nuts. And he reminds them, he says, I have heard many such things. This is his way of saying, I know about the wicked. I get it. I understand anthropology. I understand man's fallen condition. I understand the judgment that comes against wicked people. I understand everything that you've been saying about the wicked. I get it. Now, he's not boasting. He's just saying, you're telling me what I do not need to hear. You're trying to teach me something that I do not need to learn. And because of this, what does he do? He calls them miserable comforters. Why? For failing to comfort him for trying to school him on matters he already understands, rather than comforting him. Eliphaz implied that they have offered him the comforts of God. Remember that back in chapter 15, verse 11? But comfort is not what Job experienced through their graceless words. Comfort is the opposite of what they actually did for him. And Bildad and Eliphaz think that Job is a windbag. Right? Chapter 8, verse 2. Chapter 15, verse 2. But according to Job in this text, it is their words that are windy and unending. Verse 3 was like Job's way of saying, Why must you go on and on arguing with me? What provokes you to keep answering me with such useless, windy counsel? Why do you keep trying to teach the teacher? Comfort me. That's why you're here. We move to verses 4 and 5. Job says this in a rather sarcastic way. He says, I also could speak as you do. If you were in my place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. This is where Job discloses his dual desire, his double desire. And, and firstly, what we see here is that he desires to be comforted. This is what he wants. This is what most hurting people want. Whether they're suffering from this or that, they desire to be comforted. And that's exactly what he's saying through his poetry. He desires to be comforted. And we see this in verse 4 here where he tells Eliphaz that if their roles were reversed, he could act like them and be mean and cruel with his words, but he would never do that. Why? Because he doesn't like to be treated that way. He wants to comfort those, or he wants to be comforted because he's hurting, and he wouldn't respond that way to somebody who was in the opposite position. He would literally comfort those in pain why? Because he desires to be comforted when he is in pain. In other words, Job was very much a love-your-neighbor-as-yourself kind of guy. He wanted to be treated a certain way, and he wanted to treat others the way that he wanted to be treated. And these guys were just blowing it left and right. So firstly, he desires to be comforted. That's part of his desire. And secondly, he desires to be a comforter, to be the one who comforts those who are hurting. This is expressed clearly in verse 5, where Job tells Eliphaz that he could strengthen them with his mouth. He could bring them solace with his lips. He could assuage their pain. Swage means to alleviate, to remedy. According to Job, this is precisely what he would have done if the shoe had been on the other foot. In other words, if these three men were hurting and had gone through what he went through and were hurting and he traveled all that distance to go to them, he would have aimed to comfort them and assuage their pain, alleviate their pain, not grind them out with religious jargon. He would have 
came to his hurting friends, listened to their cries, listened to their complaints, listened to their concerns, and he would have comforted them through empathy and through kindness. This is what he's saying. And so we must ask the question, because we're trying to connect to Christ, how is this connected to Jesus? Well, Jesus desired to be comforted. And right now you're thinking, well, where is that in Scripture? Well, we see it in Mark chapter 4 when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. When those angels, at the end of that period of, of great travail and temptation, when the angels appeared, what did they do? They ministered to Jesus. They comforted Jesus after that trial, right? Verse 11 of chapter 4 of Mark. Jesus desired to be comforted. Job desires to be comforted. And guess what? Jesus also desires to comfort others. While dying on the cross, he comforted Mary, his mom, by giving her to John. And he comforted John by giving him to his mom, to Mary. What did he say? Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. John 19, 26 and 27. Jesus desired to comfort others. And while he's dying on the cross, he's still ultimately selfless in aiming to, cover, cover, um, to comfort his, his sad mother, his grieving mother as he's dying. He's so selfless even in that moment. Jesus' desire to comfort others is also seen in how he sent to his people a whom? A comforter, the Holy Spirit. John 14, 6, and verse 26 of that same chapter, John 15, verse 26, I will send you an advocate, I will send you a helper, I will send you a comforter. All of those words work with the original language there. And guess what? It is a mark of a disciple of Jesus and an heir and successor to Job that even as we desire to be comforted, our hearts contain a matching desire to bring comfort to others in pain. In other words, we should be like Job, and most importantly, if we are Jesus' people, we should be like Jesus. Desire to be comforted, desire to comfort others. Verse 6 now, Job says, If I speak, my pain is not assuaged, and if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Sadly, this verse shows that Job's frustration with God was indeed growing. In this miserable state of affliction, Job knew whether he spoke or remained silent, his pain would not be assuaged. And he felt that God was making it worse because God refused to speak or act on Job's behalf. How is this? plea of Job here and him crying out that it doesn't matter what I do, my pain's still there. How is this connected to Jesus? Well, if Jesus spoke or remained silent, his pain was not assuaged. No. Why? Because he came to serve through suffering. In Matthew 20, 28, he came to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs until the cup was empty, not to have the cup of God's wrath for him, not to have that removed. Matthew 26, 39. It didn't matter what Jesus said, if he was quiet or speaking. His pain was there in that he was facing the wrath of God at all times. He understood this. And, and, and we see him express that terrible, horrific pain, which I believe was there all along. We see it expressed in Gethsemane when he's praying and sweating drops of blood. He had to drink that cup of wrath. His pain wouldn't go no matter what, just like Job. Let's move to our, our second D. Job describes his miserable affliction. We see this in verses 7 through 14. This is a bigger section, seven verses. We pick it up at 7 and 8. Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company. He has shriveled me up 
which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me, it testifies to my face. Every human being has three types of hedges. I'm not talking about the garden variety out in front of your house. Every human being has three types of hedges, and we're not talking about agriculture. They have a hedge to protect their body. What do we call that? Skin. They have a relational hedge, which is represented by the people around them, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, etc., etc. And they have a societal hedge, which is represented by their standing and or position in their community. Right? So you've got, you've got the hedge of skin, which is a hedge of protection. You've got this relational hedge. People around you, they kind of form a hedge in your life. And then you've got the societal version of that. And what Job is expressing through his poetry, he believes and thinks that, that God has cut down each of these hedges in his life. Think about it. God cut down. Again, it wasn't God cutting these things down. It was Satan. But Job believes it's God because he believes God is sovereign. But did God not cut down the protective hedge of his skin when his flesh became covered in loathsome sores? Chapter 2, verse 7. There goes the removal of that protective skin, that hedge. God, in Job's mind, cut down his relational hedge when his children died in a windstorm. Chapter 1, verse 19. And God cut down his societal hedge when he lost his high position at the city gate. Chapter 29, verse 7 of Job. The, in Job's mind, again, he's thinking in this way, he's in despair. The cutting down of these hedges, he says, caused him to shrivel up like a pathetic wretch. He became emaciated even in his physical body. And his skinniness, his leanness was like a witness against him, as if God was judging and causing him to shrivel up and die like a bad grape on the vine. Now, how is Job's poetry here connected to Jesus, the removal of these hedges and the shriveling up in these things? Well, in his incarnation, the protective hedge of heaven was removed from Jesus, Philippians 2.7. His relational hedge is removed when his natural family does not believe in him, John 7 verse 5, when a large band of disciples is whittled down so that most leave him, John 6.66. What an interesting verse, 666, when people are leaving Jesus. And that relational hedge is cut down when those who remain with him only remain until the very end. And then they all abandon him, even his own 11 who were remaining disciples. Mark 14, 50. And Jesus' societal hedge is removed, what? When he is sentenced to death in a Roman court and then crucified at Golgotha. You see the parallels here with Job losing these hedges and with Jesus losing these hedges. And ultimately, it's connected to Jesus in that he hung there on the cross, abandoned, emaciated, and shriveled like a pathetic wretch. But it is his terrible suffering, his emaciation, his scars, his wounds, his crucifixion, his, his brutal death that has brought us life. Amen? Amen? There's such a positive to Jesus' suffering here, not so much with Job, although God was teaching Job some things. Second Tim chapter 1, verse 10 is a wonderful place to see the, um, that Jesus brought us life through all of his emaciation and abandonment and suffering. We move to verse 9a. Job continues, he says, He has torn me in his wrath, speaking of God, and he has hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. Job tells Eliphaz that God has acted like a wild, predatory beast toward him, full of wrath and personal hatred, like an angry lion tearing its prey with cruel jaws and sharp teeth. This is... How Job perceives God's judgment against him. Now, we know that this was not God's judgment. This was testing, and there was a purpose behind it. 
but he perceives all that's happened. He thinks of it as God attacking him like a wild, you know, cruel lion on a gazelle. Now we have to ask the question, how is this connected to Jesus? While he hung on the cross, he bore the sins of his people. 1 Peter 2.24 The man who knew no sin became sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And what happened? The Father poured out his wrath and hatred against sin on innocent Jesus at that point that he bears our sin. Jesus, our propitiator, right? He absorbed the Father's wrath against our sin, and He satisfied it in full in that moment on the cross. Hebrews 9, verse 26. So that what? Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Famous verse, John 3, 16. The wrath and hatred of sin goes against Jesus, just as Job suspects that God's wrath and hatred is going against him. That's the connection. Remember that wonderful song in Christ alone that really just shows the work of Jesus. You remember that line, and it? it's my favorite line. It says, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. There's your connection. And we move to verses 9b through 11. Job continues by saying, My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. And then verse 11, God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. Job tells Eliphaz that that evil people, like a a pack of scavengers, have gathered around him, delighted that God's attack has given them easy pickings. He says, they have gaped at me with mouths wide open, ready to devour his substance. And I think what happened was people in the community had turned against Job when they saw his lowly, terrible condition, because they all believed the same thing that Job's friends believed. Well, the reason why he's all tore up must be because he's in sin. So let's just treat him really badly. He says, they have struck me insolently on the cheek. Why, confident that God would no longer protect him. He says, they have come together unitedly. But the only reason they can do this with impunity is because God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. This is what Job thinks God has done against him. He's surrounded by evil people, by wicked people who are mistreating him, including his three friends. Now we ask the question, how is this connected to Jesus? Well, the adversaries of Jesus Did they not sharpen their eyes against him, constantly looking for a way to trap him? John 8, 8, Matthew 22, verse 15, Mark 12, 13. Were not the Pharisees and the scribes sharpening their eyes against him during his entire ministry, looking for a way to bring him down, looking for a way to trap him? They were always sharpening their eyes against Jesus. And guess what? The Father gave Jesus up to ungodly Jews and Romans, did he not? Acts 2, verse 23. Jesus was cast into the hands of wicked men, wicked sinners. Matthew 26, verse 45. And what did they do? They struck him insolently on the cheek. John 18, verse 22. They gaped at him with open mouths and they mocked him during his trial. Matthew 27, verse 29, they hurled insults at him while he hung on the cross. 1 Peter 2, 23, did they not do these things to Jesus just as Job saw them happening to himself? They happened almost in an identical manner. I would say against Jesus with much more ferocity. We must understand that when our adversaries strike us, gape at us, mock us, when they hurl insults at us for following Jesus, we need to understand that the world hated Jesus first, right? John 15, verse 18. And that suffering, disgrace for Jesus' name 
is not a disgrace. It is, in fact, a badge of honor, right? Acts chapter 5, verse 41. What did Peter and John do after they got pulverized by the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel? They went out sad and in despair with their heads down like Job. No, they went out doing cartwheels rejoicing because they were found worthy to suffer for the name. Remember that. When they mistreat you, they mistreated Jesus. That's a badge of honor because you're doing something right. Verse 12 through 14, Job continues. He says, I was at ease, and he broke me apart, speaking of God. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. Job, in this section, tells Eliphaz, I was at ease. This is not a, a guilty ease like with pagans and unbelievers. This is the ease of a virtuous man enjoying the blessings of God. That is the status, that, uh, the, the situation that Job was in prior to his suffering coming. He was at ease. He was enjoying the blessings of God, enjoying his life, enjoying his family. He was a worshipful man. And then what did God do according to Job? He broke me apart by seizing me around the neck and dashing me to pieces. This language is vivid. It's explicit. He says he set me up as his target and used me as target practice for his archers. Now, I like to shoot, and I went to a... My, the range that I go, go to, I went there yesterday and set up some targets and shot at them. I hit a few of them, not as many as I would have liked. It's hard to shoot iron sights at 100 yards. It isn't easy. Tim's probably really good at it. He's in the military. David, not too much. It's a difficult thing to do. But I had a lot of fun doing it out there. And Cameron guilted me saying, why didn't you invite me? But sometimes you just got to go out there and be alone with the Lord, right? And so I was out there shooting targets and doing these things, and I love the vivid imagery that, that Job uses here. Now, I was using a 308. He's talking about archers plucking arrows at him here. And he says, he slashed open my bowels with his divine broadsword, is what he means, and what happened? Poured out my gall on the ground. And like a, a city under attack, he says, God breaks me with breach upon breach. You can see the, the battering ram slamming the, the wall of a fortified city here. This is the, the imagery he's giving us here. It keeps hammering that wall to come through. And, and what he means here is that God is, is, is breaking me. He's, he's hitting me with breach upon breach, and he breaks me with breach upon breach until what? All my hedges are cut down. All of that protection, right? The skin and the family and the societal position, all these things. He tears them all down. That's what he's saying. Eliphaz has accused Job of running stubbornly against God with a thickly bossed shield, right? Chapter 15, verse 26. But in reality, God is running upon Job like a warrior, he says. He's coming against me. I'm not going against God with a shield. He's coming against me with a broad sword. This is what Job says. <clears throat> and we ask, how is this connected to Jesus? Well, while Jesus was calmly encouraging his disciples to stay alert and stay in prayer, what happened? He was approached by a great crowd with swords and clubs. And when Judas Iscariot identified him with a kiss on the cheek, what did they do? They seized Jesus around the neck. They put him into custody, and they led him away to be tried in a kangaroo court, right? A felonious court, Matthew 27, 36 through 57. And then at the Praetorium, the center for justice and judgment for the Romans, what happened? Jesus was dashed to pieces by a crown of razor-sharp thorns and a cat of nine tails, right? Those whips. He was, in a sense, dashed to pieces by those objects of destruction. Mark 15, verse 17, John 19, verse 1. And of course, while he hung on the cross and bore our terrible sin. The Father broke him with breach upon breach of divine wrath. 
it was the will of the Father to crush Jesus. Isaiah 53, 10. And then when he breathed his last breath and gave up his spirit, a Roman soldier took a spear and thrust it through Jesus' side. And what did it do when he did that? It pierced, it slashed his heart and a mixture of pericardial fluid with blood began to pour from the wound, right? Out of the wound, down his body, down his leg, and it began to spill and collect on the ground, just as Job felt that his gall was spilling on the ground after being slashed. And then at that moment with Jesus on the cross, when he breathed his last and suffered the way that he did, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was finally slain, and our redemption was paid in full. It was paid in full. John 1 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. The connections here are remarkable. Remarkable. We can move to our third D. Number three, Job declares his clear conscience. Verses 15 through 21. We'll pick it up at 15 through 17. He says this next: I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness, although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. Verses 15 and 16 paint for us a terribly vivid picture of a man in extremis. Because Job's skin is so damaged and punctured, he has to sew sackcloth on it. And his strength, which can be translated as horn, the word horn, is what? Laid in the dust. What? Like a defeated ox or rhinoceros putting down its horn in defeat. His face, the mirror of his soul, is red with weeping. And there are dark rings around his eyes. What is Job telling us? He's telling us that the shadow of death is visible in his grief-stricken face. He's got, sucked in, red, covered in wounds. His eyes are black. This is a man who looks like he's about to pass away. And he says, but all this happened to me, although there is no violence in my hands. In other words, Job is saying that he is innocent of any wrongdoing and that his suffering is not his own fault. And when he prays, his, he says his prayers are pure, right? Because in Job's mind, if he prays with wrong motive or an illicit kind of prayer, God could strike him down for that. And he's saying, but when I pray, my prayers are pure, which means what? That he prays with a clear conscience. He doesn't have wrong motive. He's not trying to hide sin. He's not even asking God for things that he doesn't feel that he's entitled to. His prayers are pure. He prays with a clear conscience. In other words, he has no guilt. He has no shame. He has no sense of self-condemnation when he goes before God in prayer. But he's saying, look at all the stuff that happens to me regardless. How is this connected to Jesus? Well, his adversaries repeatedly spit in his face and punched his face, which undoubtedly caused redness on his face, gave him black eyes. Matthew 26, verse 67. This happened although he had, what, committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2, 22. In other words, Jesus, like Job, but in a greater way, he suffered as an innocent man. And obviously with Jesus when he prayed, he did it with a clear conscience because he wasn't a sinner. He had committed no evil. There are the connections between Job's poetry and our Savior. Verse 18, Job says, O earth, cover not my blood and let my cry find no resting place. When Cain murdered Abel, God said to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. 
Abel, the, the innocent man of faith, right? As it says, Matthew 23, 35 and Hebrews 11, 4, what? He is dead, but his blood cries out to God for justice and vindication. Isaiah actually looked forward to the day when the earth will disclose the blood shed on it so that God will punish the inhabitants of the earth for their murderous iniquity. Isaiah 26, verse 21. The Christian martyrs of a future day cry to God to bring justice because of their shed blood. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. These cries... As it, uh, these cries are, they, they basically kind of echo around the universe. The cries of those who have been slaughtered for Christ, for the blood of the innocent, they, the cries of those people that, that have shed that blood, they, it, they cry out and echo throughout the entire universe until God hears them and answers them. The very blood of the saints cries out to God until He responds. This is what the Scripture teaches. It's a fascinating thing, but it's what Scripture teaches. In the same way, Job believes that his cry from a clear conscience will echo around the universe until justice is done and he is vindicated. How is this connected to Jesus? His blood was shed by murderous men, Acts 5 verse 30, but not in vain. We are redeemed by that blood that was shed, Ephesians 1, 7. His cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 46, what? With the cry of Job, the cry of Jesus on the cross, it found no resting place. And yet he was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. Matthew 28, 20, I will be with you till the end of time, till the ends of the earth. And on the third day, God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead, right? Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And his resurrection is the prototype for our resurrection. And when we are raised at his return, we will be fully vindicated against death. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. There are your connections between Job and Jesus, and they have implications for us through the work of Jesus. We can now move to our fourth and final D. Job divulges his daring request. We see this in verses 19 through 21, which we'll read as a whole and unpack briefly. Job says, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. He's expressing incredible hope here in the midst of his despair. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me, my eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God, as a son of man does with his neighbor. We end there. Remember, we're saving 22 for next week, Lord willing. Job tells Eliphaz, that he has a witness in heaven. In fact, he uses the word behold, which is supposed to be an attention getter. Behold, I have a witness, my witness. Look at, that. Look at how he personalizes it. Not just a witness, my witness. My witness is in heaven. What does this witness do? He testifies for me, Job says. He also says that this witness is on high, which means what? That he is lifted up, that he is exalted. This is not just a normal witness. This is a high and lofty witness. This witness will not only vindicate Job, he will actually bring vengeance on behalf of Job, in a sense, what Job is saying. Who is this witness? It is God Himself. God is the vindicator. God is the avenger of the righteous. Psalm 135, verse 15, Psalm 94, verse 1, what Bruce read earlier, Romans chapter 12, verse 19, He is our vindicator, He is our avenger. What? Vengeance! Do not seek it. Why? Because it belongs to the Lord. Since Job has no other helper, for his friends scorn him, he pours out tears to God and he cries to God. What? That that God would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. 
Job is appealing to, to the one who has the status to argue the case with God as an equal, is what he's doing here. He is basically appealing to God against God. God, I want you to defend me against yourself. That's what he's saying. That's his daring request. This is remarkable. And this was actually foreshadowed back in chapter 9, verse 33, where Job wished he had a mediator, but he was lamenting because he didn't think he had one. How is this connected to Jesus? He is the one whom Job wished for. He is the one whom Job prayed for, literally here, without even knowing it. He is Jesus, right? The divine mediator who stands in the gap for sinners like you and me. 1 Tim chapter 2, verse 5. Jesus is the, the God who advocates on behalf of redeemed men and women before God. <laughs> 1 John 2, verse 1. Try to figure that one out. You, you know what Job is essentially praying for and pleading for here? the gospel, God to mediate on his behalf to God. That's exactly what the gospel is a message of, that God mediates back to God on behalf of us because the only one who could actually mediate for us had to be God himself. And that's why he sent Christ, God, to become that propitiation, to become that mediator, to come back and represent us to the Father whom we owe a tremendous debt to. Job is praying for the gospel here. I need a divine mediator to represent me to God. That's what he's praying for. This is amazing. This is incredible. He knows that God is the advocate for him, but he also knows that God has allowed this to happen. So somehow it has to resolve with God. And you must know that Jesus as our mediator, he is performing this wonderful high priestly ministry now for us. He is now our mediator. He is now our advocate. He doesn't have to defend us against God. It's not like God doesn't have knowledge of what's going on with us. Then he makes these discoveries. Now Jesus has to stand in. But he does some kind of unique, mysterious, mediatory work on our behalf. Not arguing, I know Phil's a bad sinner. Don't kill him, Father. He never says that. But somehow in his unique profession and ministry as, as our high priest, he mediates on my behalf. I think it's primarily because we have an enemy who is constantly bringing allegations against us, it says in Revelation. And that's not Jesus and that's not God, the enemy. That's Satan who does that. And he represents us when Satan comes up there and says, Phil is worse than you ever imagined. Jesus says, I know I died for his sin. The Father confirms that. The Father doesn't go, oh, wow, I've been taken by surprise. Phil's out of salvation now. Jesus doesn't have to save me from the Father any longer. He already did that. He saved you from the Father's wrath. This is what Job wants. He is our advocate now. Now he is advocating for me. And I feel like with the way my life has been lately, he's doing it more. I've got him working full time for me because I am a dreadful sinner. He's advocating for me. He fights for me, even when I don't fight for myself. I fight against myself. I fight against the Spirit at times. But my advocate, my advocate, he advocates for me. This is what he does for you, the very thing that Job prays for is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is your connection. There is your connection. He does this advocating work, this mediatory work for, for all who have repented and turned away from their self-sufficiency and are trusting in Him alone for salvation. He's your advocate if you've done that. Notice, lastly, the phrase, this is incredible. Notice the phrase, son of man. We typically think that that phrase only appears, or at least primarily in, in Ezekiel, because Ezekiel referred to himself as a son of man. It basically means a, it means a mortal is what it means, usually the way it's rendered or translated. 
But look at Job's use of it here. He wants God to argue his case before God as a son of man, a mortal, would do with his neighbor. This is what he's asking for here. And this son of man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. Son of man and its use throughout the Gospels, it refers to Jesus' humanity, his humanness. He is fully man. And opposite to that, you have a phrase, Son of God, which is used in reference to him quite frequently in the Gospels. Even the demons called him, this is the Son of God. And that refers to his deity, his godness, because he is also fully God. Try to wrap your mind around that. But it's here in the text. Closing. Through poetry, we have seen and heard the heart of Job. His poetry is actually quite beautiful. And we understand that, I think we've established this through 15 chapters of study, that much of what he's saying, it is absolute truth, but it really doesn't apply to him, just as his friends' allegations against him don't apply. This is a man who is so hurt that he has kind of walked away from truth and reality. He doesn't understand that God is not actually his disciplinarian or judging him. He thinks that all of this pain and destruction is coming from God. Everything that he said here, he believes God is opposed to him. Chapters 1 and 2 tell us it's Satan bringing these things against him in some kind of a testing fashion for God's ultimate high purposes. But he just misunderstands where this stuff is coming from. God is sovereign. Job believes that. And Job believes that God is, nothing's going to happen without God's approval. He gets that. He, he believed in God's sovereignty, but he's also blaming God in every way for all of his travail, which is a mistake. And we have, we have seen him in this text vividly pour out his heart and his affliction that he feels like a soldier on a field that's being attacked by God and all of this expressive wording that he's using in this poetry. We have, we have seen and we have heard his heart, maybe in a way that we haven't yet, because this is intense what he said here. Through his poetry, we have seen and heard his heart, but more importantly, we have seen our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I always wonder if these guys actually had any kind of inclination as to what they were writing or what they were speaking. I don't think he has any idea that his words, his poetry has uh, prophetic implications. When, when we think of the book of Job, we don't think of it as a book of prophecy about Messiah. We just think of it as a book of poetry. But the connections are there. Have we not seen them? They're so vivid and so present and so remarkable that one would think that, right, if, you have, if you're discerning and have some, you're, you're somewhat observant and you know the Gospels, you would think here that Job wasn't writing about himself at all, that he was actually writing about Jesus because everything, it just dovetails together perfectly. You, you must be talking about the Lord Jesus here, Job. And I think if you asked him, he'd say, what's the Lord Jesus? Because he was around long before Scripture was even penned. He may have had some idea that a, a Messiah is coming, but I mean, he doesn't know what we know. The parallels between Job's words and Jesus are numerous and remarkable. I feel like Job was actually writing about Jesus and not himself. And you know what? These parallels that we've been able to find connecting these dots, these things are not coincidental. They are intentional. God put them there for a reason. God connects what Job is saying through his poetry, expressing his heart with the reality of Jesus and Jesus' suffering. Job's experiences mirror that of the coming Messiah, and God is intentional in doing this. This is not happenstance. This is not chance. This is not coincidence. It's all intentional. God put them there for a reason. We must remember, who is the true author of Scripture? Is it Job? Is it Mark? 
Is it Isaiah? No, it's God. God wrote this book. And, and one of God's primary purposes in authoring Scripture, what was so that Scripture would ultimately at every facet point to His Son, Jesus Christ. God put the connections there because He's pointing us to Jesus. All Scripture points to Him somehow. 2 Tim 3.10, John 5.39, make that absolutely clear. This book in its most ultimate sense, is about Jesus. You can always find a connection to Jesus, even in poetry that was written long before Scripture was canonized. Job is the oldest book to date. It was around before the rest of Scripture was written, and in it we see the gospel because that is God's overarching purpose for Scripture. What am I getting at here? Why am I giving you a, a lesson on hermeneutics? Why? Because we're about to enter the Christmas season. And we need to remember the reason for the season. Christ. It's very easy to get caught up in things and forget why we even celebrate Christmas. In fact, I would just say this. I would shout it from, from the White House if I could. If you have no intention of worshiping Jesus during Christmas, don't celebrate it. Get rid of it. Because that's its purpose. It's been so paganized. It's about Santa. Even the true Saint Nick believed in Jesus. At a council meeting, he punched somebody in the face. The true Saint Nick punched somebody in the face for denying the deity of Christ. Did you know that about the true Santa? He doesn't have Rudolph. He's got fister cups, and he uses them to defend Christ. That's a true story. The original Saint Nick punched somebody in the face. Now, I'm not saying go punch somebody in the face. No, go find a Mormon because they don't believe in the deity of Christ. Punch them with the gospel. Hey, you deny the deity of Christ. That's a death sentence. We're entering into Christmas season. It is imperative that we remember right now, that we begin to remember right now the reason for the season, and that is Jesus Christ. It's not just about toys and presents and hanging out against the wishes of our emperor or governor because he doesn't want us to come together, and I say, whatever. It's about Jesus we have been reminded of his person and work today through Job's poetry. And guess what Christmas does? It provides us with unique opportunities to share these truths with others, to share the reason for the season. As we prepare to shower our loved ones with, and our close friends with meaningful gifts, Let's be sure to spread the meaning of Christmas as well. Let's talk about the things that we're learning here through Job. What a way to present the gospel by taking them to Job 16. That'll be something that most people that are outside of Christ, they've, they've heard it from Matthew, Mark, Luke. Have they ever heard it from Job 16? Because there it is. Let's be sure to spread the meaning of Christmas this time too, right? This time too.